You're listening to the Turning Point Podcast. My guest today is Arlen Hamilton. She's the founder of Backstage Capital, a seed stage investment fund. She went from homeless to creating an investment fund that focuses on startup founders who are women, people of color, and LGBTQ. She has been featured in Forbes and on the cover of Fast Company. She's also the author of It's About Damn Time. You can pre-order a copy by going to penguinrandomhouse.com. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online platform where you can learn anything from photography, coding, design, or cooking. Go to turningpointpodcast.com to get two premium months free. And now, enjoy the show. Arlen, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I like to kick off every interview just understanding the person's uh, entrepreneurship journey. Was this something that was nurtured as a child? Was it something that you discovered within you at a later age? Uh, Just trying to understand, because I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, creatives, and influencers, and everyone has their unique journey. Uh, Definitely early age. Uh, I was, I, I would have had a lemonade stand if, if that were something my mom would have allowed, but I don't think she would have done something like that. But I, I mean, I had a candy, a candy operation in the third grade and was always um, obsessed with Monopoly. The game to me was so yep. much fun. And I was a little kid playing this game and so many people, I would beg my adult family members to play with me because uh, the kids didn't want to. It wasn't, wasn't their cup of tea. And uh, just from that point on, I've always thought about how do you, I thought of, I've always thought about things and the structure of a, of a business and, uh, uh, and how, how that would play out, including um, even my, my love for music and, and working in the music industry and live music and seeing it, just watched everyone's, uh, their, their career, not just the music they were making and their art, but I was watching how are they uh, doing this as a business. So it's always been on my top of mind. That's amazing. I think I was reading a little bit about you before the podcast and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were following a band and they didn't have a concert or a tour in place, but you wanted to see them that you reached out to them, right? Is, if, am I right on the story? Is that yeah. what you did? Yeah. Yeah. I was working at a bank uh, and I was really bored because I was working at like, I was doing ba- basically da- data entry, not even the fun part of working with people. I was just doing data entry. I was listening to music to keep me busy. And I came across this song from a Norwegian pop punk band and I was living in Dallas and they were in Norway and I just got in touch with them because I was just like, they're, I like their music. It's really cute and poppy and fun and different than what I'm used to. And I was just intrigued by them. So I got in touch with them online. I think it was like AOL or something. Because uh, this would have been t- t- like 19, 18 years ago. And uh, I said, you know, I'd love to see you play live. Do you ever do you ever play in the U.S.? And they said they had attempted to do a tour in California. And they had played a couple of places. But it's so hard to figure out how to book shows and get people to come to it and have people take you seriously at the clubs and everything doesn't have any, they didn't have a, a following here. So I don't know why, but I just, it didn't even cross my mind that it was a weird thing to say. I, I basically replied, well, if I can book you a tour across the United States, will you come here? And wow. I, to me, it was like, if they say, yes, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to teach myself how to book a tour. And that's exactly what happened. They said, sure, if you can do that, we have every incentive to come there. We'd love that. 
you know, it's kind of like this garage band American dream, basically, mm-hmm. thing that we were doing. Uh, and, and so I, for months, I taught myself how to book a tour, and that was a whole thing. And, um, and then I booked this tour for the summer. This was summer 2002. I booked their tour across the United States into these really small cl- uh, clubs or bars or, uh, you know, things like that that were for those types of bands at the time. And uh, it took a long time to do, but I, I made it happen. And then I became their tour manager while they were on tour because once they were here, they needed to know how to get around and, and make the tour actually happen. So it was uh, definitely creating my own destiny. Didn't make any money off of it. I mean, it, we were like an indie, indie uh, grassroots thing, but it was the time of my life. It was so much fun. That sounds amazing, especially like you didn't have a background in this, right? You were just like, I just want to see them play. So I'm just going to do whatever I need to do to see them play, right? Yeah, so, yeah it was, I like, respect there was no that. background for sure. I, I had loved live music since I was 13. I wanted to work in live music. Uh, and I was just at this bank in, in Dallas doing data entry. And I said, well, you know, I don't have any money. I don't really have any idea of what's going to happen next, but I'm, I'm interested in this and I'm curious enough and I want to try. And so I just kind of made it happen. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, even if you didn't make like money out of it, I think it was probably a great foundation for your entrepreneurship journey to just get your hands dirty. And I think that's probably what led you to, to where you are today. And, and with that, I wanted to ask you um, what motivated you and inspired you to create backstage capital. Well, it was, had been years since that story had happened, and a lot had happened in between. And I was in my now early 30s, so about 10 years later, and I still had that spirit in me of, of creating something that I, what, if I didn't see it in the world and I wanted it, I would create it, but still was also very, very broke and uh, hadn't really figured out how to make things work for me when it came to finances. And I... I thought, well, I'm hearing a lot about Silicon Valley and about startups, and I've always felt like a founder, entrepreneur, maybe I can start my own tech company uh, out of something. And I started doing research about it, and that's when I learned a lot about the, the world of startups, the world of venture capital, of investing. And I learned that 90% of all venture funding, which is funding that is meant to go towards the earliest stages of a, of a startup's career and, and be risky and innovative, that 90% of that funding was going to straight white men in the mm-hmm. U.S. And I knew just, I just knew the stats of what our demographics are really like. And I thought that's really lopsided and weird. And so that started me on a journey of more research, of outreach to, to founders to ask them what their experience had been like, like, you know, started with me saying, I want my own company. I want to raise some money for it. And I'm going to do some research and just go in there and, and, and get that money. And it turned into, wait a minute, there's something behind the scenes here. Kind of like an Aaron Brockovich kind of, wait a minute, there's a lot that's not being talked about. And so I researched and I interviewed all these uh, founders and I came to understand that many of them, if they were anything but a straight white man, had not been allowed like not been invited for interviews with investors even though they may have had companies that were making money and they were all happening separate from each other so they weren't talking to each other they didn't realize it and then I also interviewed 
straight white men who are in companies. And they would sometimes tell me that they got an interview or they got a, a check when they didn't even have a company yet. They just had an idea. And so I'm looking at these two groups of people and I'm like, what's the difference? Why are they getting the money and we're not? And then, and that's really when I kind of had to have a, a hard truth about it and say, this, the truth is, what, no matter what I think of uh, people, which is, which is a very open, collaborative, loving, um, personal point of view, the mm -hmm. truth of the matter is that we are being left out. And even the, the white founders who I'm talking to who are guys can, can admit this, that they are sometimes given uh, a, head, uh, a leg up. And so did more research. I started putting together a thesis about what a fund to invest in only people who are not, who are women, people of color and LGBTQ like myself, what that type of fund would look like and size and scope and, and operations. And for three or so years, I went out and asked people to invest in it that were rich people who invested normally. And they all said no. <laughs> um, and then I, and then I, I got my first yes in September of 2015 and I went from there. That's amazing. And, and so I work in tech. I, I always, I work in tech during the day, podcaster at night. That's how I describe yeah. myself. But I used to live in San Francisco and I worked at tech startups and now I'm in the New Jersey, New York area working Ooh. for a tech startup that's a headquarters in San Francisco. And I went to several pitch events to pitch business ideas. And as a Latina lesbian woman, I experienced this myself. I remember I went to one competition and I think I ended up being fourth place. And I had a, another friend of mine that helped me with several things of the, uh, to prepare the pitch deck and whatnot. And I realized that all the winners were white, straight men. And mm. I kept going to events and I kept seeing the same thing. I didn't, I didn't obviously do it as the same investigation that you have done and the, the process that you have been through, but I can definitely say that in Silicon Valley, that is, that is the thing. And mm -hmm. it's, there's a gap. There's definitely a gap in between, you know, uh, a white straight man and, you know, maybe a, like I said, like a Latina lesbian woman or mm -hmm. someone else from the LGBT community. Are they seeing the same? And even though they might be gay or whatever it is, like your skill set and where you're able to build should be what you're focusing on, regardless of the person that you are. Yeah. And there is a big gap. In, in, and I'm hoping you know, with people like you that are building backstage capital and other people that, you know, they can actually be the voice and defend those that they want to build a business, that things change in the near future. Like, I'm really hoping they do. Yeah, I think it's already started changing. Uh, the last five years, there's been a dramatic change and, and mm -hmm. it's not fast enough and it's not yet what we deserve, but it has started to change. And it'll, I think it'll change in waves too. What, what, what I've seen happen is, and this is actually how it, happens it had you know it's not very fair but this is how I've seen it happen where the first uh, underrepresented group to get uh, a, a footing or get some headway is usually white women and yeah. you can see that that and that the numbers came out recently that they're getting more funding now and then the next group is usually black women uh, even though usually black women are doing even more outsized work right and then the next group is usually Latinx women. Um, and so I, th I think there's this crest uh, of a wave that's happening. And if it started with the white women, then there, there's, it, it's going to happen. And, and uh, it's what I work towards every day. 
And and in building uh, backstage capital or in your journey overall, did you have any mentors that helped you throughout the way um, or anyone that you could like bounce ideas from or, you know, like in the tech world, we always say you have a rubber duck where you can talk to that rubber duck and you get those yeah. ideas from. Yeah. Um, did you have someone like that in your life? I had definitely um, people I would reach out to and ask for advice, but it wasn't like I had a like a set group or a set person mm -hmm. who was a guru or mentor. Um, I would sort of st strategize how many times I would go to the well with a certain person and, and I would take too much of their time. But along the way, the way I think about it more so is like um, when you're on a marathon, you're running a marathon race and there people every once in a while will hold out a cup of water for you and you're mm -hmm. able to go to the next stop. That's how I think about it. And some of those people um, were surprising and some of them weren't, but you know, I think about Brad Feld. He is a venture investor who was very helpful. He's written a lot of books about venture and, and was in a lot of ways a professor for me, even though he wasn't actually professing to me by reading his books and studying them as if they were a textbook. And then having him answer a question or two along the way is really helpful. He did end up becoming an investor in our first fund. And, and Sam Altman actually is the president, or was the, the, the president of Y Combinator, which is an um, accelerator that's kicked off Airbnb and Dropbox and a few others, and is one of the well, most well-known ones. He, at the time, had just become president of Y Combinator, and he was introduced to me by his brother, who I found my way to. And he uh, definitely put his hand out and put one of those cups in my hand. And, 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 and it, so it wasn't this sort of ongoing, I'm mentoring at their feet situation or being mentored at their feet, but it was uh, a helping hand here and there. And then so many women along the way um, stepped up and, and helped out. And a lot of times, to be honest, it did feel uh, very lonely and, and that it was hard for people to relate to what I was doing because I was trying something that hadn't been tried before. Yeah. And I think that's every entrepreneur thing like they, that they always say that it's kind of like a journey that you go alone and you feel alone all the time. And it's, and it's very hard, especially because you're working long hours, but then you always like, you feel alone, even though yeah. someone might have built something in the same industry, but with you, it was, yeah, it was something that I hadn't built before. So um, I can, can only imagine now having this experience um, as an entrepreneur what is one piece of advice that you can consistently give someone who maybe is like an early stage entrepreneur, it's just starting out. What is one piece of advice that you would, you would give them? Um, I would say, you know, I, I've seen now about 6,000 companies in the last five or so years, and we've invested in about 2% of that. And so I've seen a lot of pitches. I've seen a lot of people trying to shoot their shot. I've seen a lot of people uh, falter and a lot of people just knock it out the park. And I would say the most important thing is, it, the most important thing to me is, is, is remaining authentic and true to yourself and, and not trying to, to become something in order to get a certain amount of money. That is just a, a recipe for a disaster, whether it's uh, near term or long term. So that's like the main thing. But I also think that um, just like practically, really, really understand, like really knowing your company and knowing the market and the competition and, and your numbers and your projection, like really knowing this left and right and in and out, never um, sort of coming up with the company and, and deciding on what you're going to do. And then that's when your education stops 
and now you're just kind of out there. You need to be reading and learning and listening to podcasts and to audible audio books and to all sorts of things every single day of your career. You need to be a learning machine because if I or an investor knows more about you, your company or your market than you do, that's a really big red flag. And, and it's something that I feel like um, not enough people are told. Yeah. Or it doesn't come naturally to them that they feel like, well, I've made it here. So like, I feel like everyone has a journey and in that journey, people are like, well, I want to make it here. But once they're there, they don't know what to do. Once they make, yeah. the, once they get an investment, they're like, well, I just got the investment. So, but what do I do next? You continually have to, to grow and, and personal growth for me this year has been huge. And, and, and with that, I was thinking like, where, where do you see backstage capital like in the next four or five years? I'm a big proponent on like vision boards and journaling to kind of really figure out where you want to go because mm-hmm. in your mind, things change and, you know, we're, we're emotional beings. So one day you could feel very pumped and one day you can feel down in the dumps because it happens. We, we were emotional like that. So um, where do you see the, the company going as, you know, the years keep moving along four or five years from now? Um, I think that as much change or if not more uh, change will happen in those four or five years in the ecosystem, which will directly affect us, which is, I think that we're going to, you're going to see now, uh, we will we'll have our fifth year anniversary, September of 2020. And so the next few months is just all about us really nurturing, continuing to nurture our portfolio, which means working with our companies side by side and really um, helping them go to the next level in, in as many cases as possible. And then um, you know, evolving as people and bulking up our, our skills as well. And I think the five years that follows that, so the first five years I see what mm-hmm. that, that has looked like, and then the five years that follow that, I think is where you're going to see all, all of the, uh, or a lot of the fruits of the labor. And where you're going to see not only in our portfolio, but in the ecosystem at large, you're going to see more and more companies that are going to have success stories that were led by underrepresented, underestimated people. So you'll see more and more IPOs, public offerings of companies that were led by women and people of color uh, and LGBTQ founders. You'll see more and more companies who have um, incredible revenues and incredible profit margins and uh, build big legacy businesses. You'll also see the same group creating their own way and creating smaller companies that are making their, their, their families wealthy. So I think there's a, a big case for having billion dollar companies that are led by underrepresented people because I think that sets the tone for the rest of, uh, of our future. And that's a big deal. But I also think there's a lot of merit in having, if, you, if I can be in a room full of people who are underrepresented today and hopefully not underrepresented for long, but they're in a room, we're in a room of that, the diverse group of people and each of them has a company that it does six figures a year and gives them a profit margin that it has them uh, making that up, or they make, do millions with the six figure profit margin. To me, that is as powerful because you're kind of charting your own path and you're making your own way. So I think a lot of that's going to happen just naturally because we, it is our time. That's what my book is called. It's about damn time. Um, 
I think it's our time. And then the way that backstage, my fund will be affected by that is that we will start to see returns, in my opinion. We will start to see outsized returns, in my opinion, because we, we were so early in a lot of these cases and also because we were outside of the, going against the grain. And that's when you see, when you take big risks, you, take, you see big uh, upside in, in a lot of cases. And then I think a lot of it you'll see is a, a paying forward. You'll see a lot of uh, founders that we backed and that others have backed who are now successful over the years, and then they in turn invest in other companies, and it goes so on and so forth. And uh, I think that if we want to, as a fund, we will um, have a, a great deal of capital under management in a, in a world where we never did, where it was like fighting for every penny. I think that that changes somewhere in the 18 month range where we are actually turning away money. These are things that I see kind of around the corner, uh, seeing around corners. The same way in 2014 that I said, I'm going to invest in 100 companies by 2020, people thought I was crazy, and then we invested in our 100th company in May of 2018. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations on all that hard work. Thank you. Uh, I didn't want to change gears a bit. I do like to kind of wrap up a bit asking the guests two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is, uh, what books have you read that you would recommend, but that one book, maybe that made a difference, that's the one, the one top in the list, uh, what would that be? Hmm. Well, I've read, yeah, of course, read many. Um, I think the one that made the biggest difference, right, you know, that I can think of right now is actually What I Know For Sure by Oprah. Because I've read a lot of venture books, and I can give that list, and I've read a lot of business books and uh, inspirational books. But what I know for sure by Oprah kind of helped me. Uh, it's like she was speaking to me and um, kind of helped me level up. That's awesome. So then the other question is, um, what do you do to unwind at the end of the day um, when you want to take a break from from your business and just a breather, uh, what is that one thing? It could be hobbies or, or anything in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, my hobby is photography, but that doesn't really unwind me. That's more of a, it's a hunt, you know, and I, yep. that's more of a, I'm really sharp when I do that. What um, it helps me unwind is, and this happens very frequently, is I will put on my sweatpants, uh, mo- more than likely my Janet Jackson sweatpants from the last <laughs> concert I went to. They're so comfortable. Uh, I will put them on and I will, plot myself down on the couch after a very long day and I will watch General Hospital. I'll first, here's what I do. I'll watch Rachel Maddow. Yes. Uh, while I'm ha- I'll watch it alone while I'm having dinner because my wife, uh, all she hears from the other room is me yelling at the TV, <laughs> either saying right on Rachel or yelling at whatever idiot she has on in the background that she's responding, you know, responding to herself. And then she'll, and then my wife, Anna, will come into the room and we'll watch General Hospital if it's a weekday. And General Hospital has helped me unwind for most of my life. And no matter what my circumstances were, if I was, you know, good and bad, uh, feast or famine, if I could get my hands on on an episode of General Hospital, it actually really helped. It's like watching a a steady, like this, a, a group of friends that, that are there and that are consistent and uh, in many ways 
kind of like a, a, a sports team that's your local favorite sports team just you may be mad at them for certain decisions or you they may be having an off season but you're always going to uh, ride for them and that really was what uh, general hospital has been for me yeah I, I can appreciate that because i feel the same way about like friends the tv show yeah. like it, it has been in my life since i can't even remember when like very young Mm-hmm. And, you know, and coming out of the closet, like, and getting heartbroken for the first time and to the point to where I got married uh, two years ago, almost. And mm-hmm. in the toast, one of the, um, the bridesmaids said, uh, mentioned friends and how me and my wife, you know, will quote the show all the time. So I can, I appreciate that because I feel like um, it's very rare that I find someone that will say that about a show that it's like, it's like family, it's like home, it's like comfort. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. once you watch it, it's like everything else, just like all your problems just kind of like go away. Cause you're in like that little comfort zone with your show and it just kind of calms you down. So I can mm-hmm. definitely appreciate that. Cause I feel that way about that show. Yeah, so. exactly. So thank you very much for being part of the podcast today. I think this was a great conversation. You know, I appreciate everything that you're doing for the LGBT community, for all the minorities and trying to build businesses. And and I wish you all put the best. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That is a wrap for this episode. I think this was a really good episode for minorities that feel that they are not able to accomplish their goals or that they don't have people in their corner. Uh, pulling for them and trying to make a difference in this world. And I think Arlen is definitely someone to admire for putting herself out there and building this great investment fund that gives opportunity to those that feel that they might be alone. If you are loving the podcast, don't forget to go to iTunes, leave a rating and a review. If you're looking for resources, anything from book recommendations from my guests to using Skillshare and getting two premium months free, don't forget to go to turningpointpodcast.com. And for now, peace out. See you next time.